Well, I heard a story um, from a queer female rabbi who runs a yeshiva. And a yeshiva is a seminary um, where Jewish people who want to be ordained as rabbis would go. So this rabbi, her name is Rabbi B'nai Lappi, um, proposes that we all, every one of us, um, we have master stories. So Christianity has a master story. Maybe we would say different master stories. But some would say, all who believe in the name of Jesus will be saved. It's a master story. Judaism has a master story. Follow the Torah, and God will bless you. America, where your dreams come true. Atheism has its own master story. This rabbi would say that everyone's master story will crash eventually. Like, no matter what, all of our master stories will crash. So, B'nai, the rabbi, grew up Orthodox Jewish in the city that I grew up in, so Skokie, a suburb of Chicago. Um, she grew up Orthodox Jew, attending a synagogue there. As a teenager, B'nai realizes that she's gay, that she's a lesbian, and the Torah that she loves says that she is an abomination. She would say, at that moment, my master's story crashed. Her contention is that by definition, all of our master stories crash at some point, and the only question is, what will we do then? So B'nai says that when her master story crashed, she packed her bags, moved to Japan, began chanting, and was going to study to become a Buddhist monk. She believes that we have three choices when our stories crash. Choice one is to stay put, um, kind of to live with, with, it, with it, maybe in some kind of denial, but stay in the system, continue get, to get the perks that staying in the particular system offer you, as those perks are provided. But you don't have to challenge anyone. You don't have to come out in some way. You just kind of keep doing your thing, even though maybe the system is no longer working for you. The second choice, B'nai would say, is the opposite side of that same coin. We just say, forget it, right? I'm out of here. So B'nai moved to Japan and studied Buddhism and loved it. She was on her way to becoming a Buddhist monk. And B'nai would say that most people choose one of these two options, right? And in today's religious landscape, obviously option two is trending, right? There's lots of craziness in my belief system. It seems really flawed on closer inspection. This thing that I thought was amazing is in fact deeply troubling at times and maybe incompatible with who I am. But B'nai would say that there is a third option. Right before B'nai began her studies to become 
a Buddhist monk. While in Japan, she found a Jewish rabbi. I don't know if there are many Jewish rabbis in Japan. I haven't been there. Um, but she found a Jewish rabbi and had a conversation. And the rabbi said something that spoke to her heart. And she realized, wait, this is who I am. I'm Jewish and I love Torah. And she moved back to the States. She attended yeshiva incognito as um, a gay woman in the 90s. Um, uh, at that time, uh, lesbians could not be ordained as rabbis. She graduated from the yeshiva and started a radical queer uh, yeshiva called Sfara, which means uh, an inner sense of moral intuition. So kind of the idea that if we turn in, if we look inside ourselves, if we go to that place where truth resides in ourselves, we can find justice, we can find truth, Sfara. And Sfara today has international ripples and um, Rabbi, um, B'nai Lapi is recognized as one of the most influential Jewish leaders in her generation. So B'nai would say the third way to respond to a crash is to innovate, to come up with new creative systems, new creative ways of living out our story. She'd say, challenge the systems, break the rules, get pissed off. That's all a quote. Um, <laughs> not every innovation will stick, but an, over time, enough will cohere and produce a new master story that, of course, sometime in the future will be the source of the next generation's crash. Essentially, she's describing the processes of evolution. And we see this process unfolding from the beginning of Jesus' ministry as he's launching his movement. He has his famous passage known as the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the, Mark, on the Mount, which Tom has affectionately retitled Manifesto on the Mount, because the Sermon on the Mount, rather than these lovely platitudes like we picture, you know, our hippie Jesus in the movies, blessed are the pure in heart, you know, blessed are. But rather than them being these sweet platitudes, what Jesus is saying, the Beatitudes are a profound and direct challenge to the status quo of his day, to how the system has defined identities. And the system for Jesus would have been both religious and sociocultural because they weren't distinct from each other. It was all intertwined. Matthew 5 says, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be healed, filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who suffer harm for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes is turning upside down some dearly held social conceptions of what certain states of being mean. Right, most societies, most cultures, our culture celebrates advancement, accumulation, amassing things to ourselves, building our empires. Jesus is genuinely redefining what constitutes both a sign of and a state of blessedness, of being blessed by God. I don't think Jesus is looking at his audience and saying, there's a lot of poor people in my audience, and I need to adjust what I say to speak to these people. Of course not. Jesus believes what he's saying, and he's made it his task to convince his listeners, blessed are the poor. So some of the gospel writers say poor in spirit, some just say blessed are the poor, because theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the meek, the human impetus to become strong, competent, assertive, like, we don't want to be meek. Like, I don't want you to say, that 80, I love her. She's so meek, right? <laughs> we have this fantasy of the sufficient self, and that's what we think we are supposed to attain. Jesus is working with the concept of blessedness, of receiving God's kingdom, but of an, instead of attaining, amassing, building our own empires or prosperity doctrine, Jesus talks about emptying, diminishing, impoverishing self. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of God. I love um, the mystics. I spent a year of COVID being mentored, I like to say, by Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa, um, reading one of her books and just being blown away the whole time. I think Teresa is how I made it through COVID. But mystics are always in this pursuit of self-emptying such that it leads to deeper connection with God and with blessedness. And it's not just the poor that Jesus says. It's those who mourn. It's the merciful. It's the peacemakers. It's those who are persecuted for the sake of justice. And of course, when Jesus uh, re and of course, Jesus is reimagining re a society where everyone has enough, where all humans were flourish, would flourish, where all of us would thrive. And of course, it's not just the Beatitudes. It's every time Jesus says, you've heard it said, but I say. He's reimagining. He's innovating. It's every story. It's every parable that reimagines a new way of living out his faith. Our tendency, without thinking about it, is to think of Jesus as a good Christian. But of course, Jesus has never heard of Christianity. Jesus is a good Jew who is offering critique in a tradition of the prophets that Jesus would have been so familiar with, grown up with and innovating new ways of spirituality and new ways of living. So what I want to do with the rest of our time is ask the question, 
How do we know when we're in a crash? When we find ourselves in a crash, is it always best to choose option three? If we are choosing option three, what does it mean? What might it look like? So just take a moment and think. Either am I currently in some kind of crash? Have I ever been in some kind of crash? Early on when our church was young, a very sweet couple gave birth to a baby who had severe challenges. A handful of that couple's friends felt really strongly that they heard from God. If they fasted and prayed and created prayer chains, that God would heal the little baby. And so they did that. They fasted and prayed. Unfortunately, that baby did not survive. We were a smaller community then. Um, it was horrible, obviously devastating for the parents and for the family um, and for our community. But for the friends who felt convinced that God spoke to them and God said, I will heal this baby, their master story crashed. I remember as a young leader in a local church learning that a spiritual hero of mine, this is, we were in the vineyard movement and the big thing was praying for people and watching the activity of the spirit and praying for the sick and the sick person said, oh my gosh, I'm healed and that's a big deal. So the spiritual heroes were the people who we would have said moved in power and there was this guy, and I'd been at conferences and seen him praying for people, and he seemed to always know what God was doing and where the Spirit was moving. And I was like, oh, I just want to be just like him. And, and I thought about it a lot, and I watched him. I mean, I was young. Um, and at some point, I learned that this guy was sexually abusing uh, young women that he was praying for. Now, in my mind... That was impossible. It was not 2023 where we're reading about this every day in the newspaper. Like, I did not have a category for this, right? This could not happen in my story. The story I was telling myself did not have room for this guy to be both uh, gifted by God and flawed. Our stories crash when they no longer work for us. So number two, which option to take? So I just want to start by saying there's not a right or wrong, right? We know that. Sometimes staying in a system that stopped working for us, it just makes sense, at least for a while. There can be all kinds of reasons why we might not be ready to leave that system. It's just okay. On the contrary, in some situations, we're too wounded to stay in the system, or we find the system we're in to be toxic. Sometimes we've evolved or matured in some way that could uh, make it so that we're incompatible, who we're becoming is incompatible with the system. Sometimes we just feel called to something different. This is no longer us. When our church was moving, toward inclusion, we tested the waters of the movement we were part of. We're so excited. This is what we think God is doing. Isn't this great? 
No, uh, they did not agree with um, our conclusion, and so we tried a little harder. I mustered up David's enthusiasm. Really? Inclusion? This is great. They still were not sold on that um, idea. They were happy with business as usual. We couldn't stay and become who we were becoming. Now, that said, we didn't give up on Christianity. We joined with lots of others who are finding their way to what Brian McLaren would call a new kind of Christianity. There are three options. We decide what makes sense to us at any given time. Number three, staying and innovating. Jesus had all kinds of critiques for the systems he inhabited. Arguably, Jesus had critique for human propensities. But as a follower of uh, uh, Torah, his critique is within his system, wanting to rehabilitate what he believes is of God and to put forth a way of living that will encourage human flourishing for everyone. He works with his text in his system, his culture. There's been a pretty big exodus from religion in general. these last years. It's not trending right now to um, attend church every week. The articles that we can read, um, Pew Research, shows numbers of people leaving their faith, faith communities in droves. And often with stories of their crashes, issues of inclusion, racism, sexual abuse, mishandling money, outdated or colonizing practices, right? I remember actually being at a conference, it was like 30 years ago, and uh, there was a sociologist who was speaking, and he was talking about Europe's trend away from faith and how hard it was in certain countries to just find a church, just to uh, worship, but that in the next 50 years, America was going to follow suit. And I remember being a little scared at that time, thinking, gosh, like I I hope that's not the case. Um, But of course, people can leave. And hopefully it's helpful for those of us to stay, to understand the critiques and beyond that, to understand what new ways of doing faith might be trying to be born. Something inside me sits in our Jewish Christian system. I can learn different forms of meditation, benefit from other practices, but this still feels home to me. Something inside me resonates with our stories, good, bad, and ugly. So I don't want to leave, but I do want to hear critiques and learn from them. Number four, innovation from the beginning. Uh, It's not just Jesus, it is the Hebrew Bible that's filled with crashes and innovation. The Exodus story gives the Hebrew people a new focus. It's no longer that we are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our new story is that God gave us the law at Mount Sinai or that Yahweh delivered us from the hand of our enemy. Typically, crashes and innovations happen during times of crisis or disruption, like 400 years of the Hebrew people being in slavery and bondage, or 40 years of wandering in the desert. 
And then a few hundred years later, when the first temple was destroyed and many people, Jewish people, were deported to Babylon and there's, again, dramatic changes in the master story and how the people of God live out their faith. There's a theologian some of you uh, may have heard of. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. And she believes that Christianity has a major disruption every 500 years, causing us to rethink our master story. She would argue that the last one was the Reformation and that we are in the middle of one right now. And five, who we are at Sanctuary. While there is no one voice, obviously, for our community, we recognize that we do need a different kind of space. We know that we need inclusion, and we know that we need to learn from those who we have historically excluded. We know that we want to sing songs, and I, for one, love many of our old hymns, but we also want to sing songs that rehearse our evolving faith that are relevant to us in 2023, that enliven our own connection with God. I thank God for James and our worship leaders who not only provide us with worship every Sunday, but are writing songs that carry the ethos of our community. For Leanna, David shared earlier about our kids' wing, but Leanna, our kids' Uh, wing leaders are constantly asking the question, how to tell these ancient stories, these Bible stories, to our children in a way that will fill them with love of God, in a way that will help them know that God loves them, that will help them love their neighbor. Much of our thinking about who is our neighbor has changed over the years, and our stories need to reflect that change. I think it's an amazing opportunity, actually, to be a part of a community that is constantly seeking the Holy Spirit's help to reveal the awesomeness of who Jesus is and what our story is and practices and rituals that are alive and resonate with us today. I'll close by saying that crashes can be really helpful in the long run, even if they're really painful as they happen. Many of you know that I identify, identify as a Jewish person with a faith in Jesus. There are some challenges to that, the least of which most Jewish people don't consider it a category, and many Christians don't understand why I still call myself Jewish. I have developed a very sweet friendship with Rabbi Esther, who is the rabbi of the synagogue just down the road from us, Agur Achim. Um, and that friendship has been nothing but blessing. But at the same time, questions arise. What do I do with Christianity's very poor record with anti-Semitism? What do I do with theologies that posit that Christianity is the new and improved version of Judaism? What do I do 
with scriptures that some folks consider to be anti-Semitic. I've been a follower of Jesus for a number of decades now, so none of this is new to me. But for some reason, these questions are more alive to me today. So I realize this is a kind of crash for me. But it's also lovely. I have a community to work out my questions with. I have a dear, blessed friend who is a rabbi, who I have the most amazing, raw, open conversations with. I have a robust faith in the supreme love of Jesus and of scripture, and it is all real. So perhaps our invitation is to identify our crashes and to find folks in community to help us navigate what can sometimes be pretty muddy waters and maybe to be bold and to innovate something new and something glorious and know that in doing so we are ever more faithfully following Jesus. Amen.